It is my great joy to introduce you to Jody Ware. Jody grew up in Portland, Oregon, in a home blessed with Christian parents and four older sisters. This means she has great courage. She heard the gospel from an early age and professed faith in Christ at the age of eight. In 1978, she married the love of her life, Bruce Ware, and then worked in various jobs to put him through school. He is a professor of theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He also is the author of one of my very favoriteest, favoriteest books, Big Truths for Young Hearts, Teaching and Learning the Greatness of God. If you do not own this book, you need to. And you need to find a child to read it to. It is fabulous. I absolutely love it. We've done it for family worship. Um, I've even read it for studying to teach my little people on Wednesday nights. Um, it's just a great resource to have. And the way that Dr. Ware words things really helps you put big theological thoughts on a level that where it doesn't lose its richness, but it helps with the simplicity so little hearts can grasp the great things of God. So Bruce and Jody have two married excuse me, one married daughter and one other daughter, and they have three beautiful grandchildren. Jody is involved in the music ministry and the women's ministry at their church, Clifton Baptist in Louisville. She also works with the Seminary Wives Institute. She's a teacher and a registrar and the faculty wives at Southern. She loves walking, reading, playing the piano, and meeting one-on-one -on -one with women and engaging in conversational ministry. Now, the first time I ever heard Jody was way back in 2001 when Brittany was a babe in arms and when this back portion of the sanctuary was our fellowship hall. So she came and spoke to us ladies, and that was quite a while ago, but I can still remember uh, one of her um, main quotes that, that day was, don't listen to yourself, preach the truth to yourself. And ladies, if I can remember it all the way from 2001 to right now, that is saying something. So, And then she came back again and blessed us in 2015. It was actually my first um, ladies retreat as part of the women's ministry. So just a very special year for me personally. And it was just a joy to listen and to hear her share her heart. And what I love about Jody is she's one of those ladies, you just walk up to her and you can just smell the love of Jesus on her. I just love it. So I'm very excited for you guys to be able to hear her heart as she comes and shares with us. So if you'll come, Jody. Please join with me in prayer as we begin. Oh, our gracious Father, indeed, where else would we go? Where else do we find truth and hope and peace and joy but in your word? And Lord, we thank you that in your kindness and in your mercy, you have opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. We give you great praise. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather tonight and tomorrow and to look at what your word instructs us about our words. Oh, Lord, would you be so kind as to encourage us and exhort us and convict us, teach us in ways that you alone know each one of us needs to grow. And may we give you great thanks, great gratitude from our hearts as we see you work, Lord. Our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you. We are looking to you to teach us. I thank you for this time and pray that you would bless it by your grace, through your spirit, for your glory, and for the good of us, your daughters, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is a joy to be with you again. We love this church. We recommend this church to a lot of people. Anybody that we know is moving to, to this area. And I know you know you're all blessed to live here. It's remarkably beautiful. 
And I just realized something. I felt so bad. I didn't even think about it being St. Patrick's Day, and I didn't bring anything green with me, except this is green. I'm so glad. Maybe that'll keep me from getting pinched. I don't know. So this weekend, we're going to be thinking together about what God's word teaches us and instructs us about our words. And we're going to look at three different categories of our speech. Tonight, we're going to be thinking about talking to God, about the tremendous privilege that we have of prayer. Tomorrow morning, we'll be thinking together about talking to each other, about growing in gracious communication. And then tomorrow afternoon, we'll be thinking together about talking to ourselves. And what Rachel just quoted from many, many years ago is one of the things that we will be talking about as we learn to monitor our minds and be aware of what we're thinking. But tonight, we get to think about talking to God. What a privilege we have to talk to the creator and the sustainer and the ruler and the redeemer. It should take our breath away. And I know I'm not going to be saying anything new. These are things you know, but they are things we need to be reminded of. We are good forgetters. We forget quickly. And you have probably noticed in God's word how often he instructs us and encourages us to remember. And he gives us many ways to remember. So tonight we're going to remember whom it is that we have the privilege to pray to. We will look at some attributes of God that especially inform or ought to inform our prayer life. Things that we need to remember when we come to him in prayer. And then we will think about why we should pray and some reasons why it's hard to pray and how we can grow in kind of fighting through those hindrances that can keep us from praying. So that's where we're headed. We will begin by talking about some aspects of the character of God. You know, it's important to begin right here because we talk to different people in different ways, don't we? Depending on who the person is or what our relationship is with them. You probably talk to your parents differently than you talk to the the clerk at the grocery store. I hope you do. Or you talk to your husband differently than you talk to your two-year-old. Again, I hope you do. We talk to different people differently depending on our relationship with them and who that person is. So we need to think clearly about who God is when we are coming to talk to him. It's also easy to kind of forget some of the things that we know about God's character when we are praying to him. Sometimes you can have the sense that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, right? That's a phrase that we hear. Sometimes you may feel that way, that is God really listening? Does he really hear me? Sometimes you may be facing something that is so difficult and you think, I just don't know if God is going to be able to handle this. This this just might be too hard for God. Or sometimes we can view God in kind, kind of like a cosmic vending machine where if we say the right thing and do the right thing and maybe pray often enough or long enough or just say the right words, then out will pop the thing that we're praying for. You know, we could just kind of get a a skewed perspective on who it is to whom we are praying. So let's return to God's word and be reminded of who it is to whom we are praying. We'll we'll be looking at three attributes of God that I think, as, as you think about what they instruct us, what they teach us, and then as they fit together, they form a very helpful foundation for our prayer life. The first one is God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Of course, we know that God's wisdom is taught and displayed throughout the Bible. We will look at just a few texts. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding is beyond measure. Think of that. God's understanding is infinite, boundless, without limitation. This is God's wisdom. It is beyond measure. You cannot measure it. In Isaiah 40, we read this about the wisdom and the power of God, but we're focusing on wisdom right now. 
Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? So you just, you get this image from these rhetorical questions of how massively big and powerful God is. And then we read, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So again, these questions are designed to demonstrate to us that God needs no advisors, no counselors. He is not looking for advice or help from anyone else. He doesn't need counsel or advice from anyone else because he knows everything infinitely and perfectly. Now, I love how Paul quotes from these verses again, not again, quotes from them in Romans 11 at the end of chapter 11. You think of the first 11 chapters of Romans where Paul just lays out this glorious theological treatise of what the gospel is. And then before he moves on to chapter 12 with the practical applications and implications, he pauses in this doxology of praise. He just bursts out in praise to our great God and he focuses on the wisdom of God which seems very appropriate, doesn't it? Because the gospel displays the wisdom of God. How can a just God justly justify sinners? The gospel just displays the wisdom of God in a a massively important way. How can a holy God be reconciled to a sinful people? Only through the gift of his son. So the unsearchable wisdom of God is made manifest in the gospel there as we see in Romans. All right. As we think about our prayer lives, it is right for us to consider God's infinite wisdom. He knows all things. He knows what is best. He knows what is right and perfect in keeping with his moral right and perfect character. Doesn't that give you great hope? It certainly does me. Another thing we need to see in scripture, because God knows everything, he knows the future. Look with me at Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 24. This is a really interesting text. It's demonstrating the futility of the false idols of the the pagan people around the Israelites. And God, the one true God, is challenging these false idols. So we read in Isaiah 41, 21 to 24. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. So here, the God of Israel is challenging the false gods to declare what is going to happen in the future, because if they could do that, that will prove that they are gods. But of course, they cannot declare what is going to happen in the future, because they are false gods. But God, the one true and living God, does know the future. And we just see that throughout scripture, don't we? Whatever he says is going to happen comes to pass. We can count on that. It's part of what it means to be God. He knows the future. And we don't. We don't. The future is murky and confusing to us. What a comfort it is to know that God knows the future. One more text I want us to notice in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Whatever the Lord purposes, what he knows is best to do, he will do it. We can count on it. What comfort that is. How that should inform our prayers. One New Testament text that says something similar is in Ephesians 1.11, where Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God knows everything. He has purposes that he has, is, and will be accomplishing. 100% guarantee we can trust him. So what does the wisdom of God mean for our prayers? Because God knows everything, and because he will accomplish his purposes, his knowledge and his perfect will should be the goal of our prayers. As we pray, we should be seeking to bring our will in line with his perfect will. Again, we are good forgetters, and in our pride, we can begin to think that we know better, that we know better than God. We need constant reminders that God truly does know better. A verse that I frequently pray is 2 Chronicles twenty twelve. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do. I feel that way frequently. I do not know what to do. But my eyes are on you because you are the one who does know. To quote Elizabeth Elliot, she said, Prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to our desires as it is whereby our desires are bent to God's will. Wasn't that helpful? We don't pray to bend God's will to our desires. There, that We cannot do that. That would be futile. And it's foolish because God knows everything perfectly. So we pray for our desires to be more and more conformed to God's perfect will. And I like this word picture from Paul Tripp. He said, prayer is not bringing your list and asking God to sign on the bottom. Prayer is handing God a blank sheet that you have already signed and trusting him to fill it out as he sees fit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yes, Lord, whatever your will is. The wisdom of God is so key to our prayer life. We need to remember that God knows everything and we know so little (laughs) And a lot of what we think we know might be wrong or a little bit off, you know, but whatever it is that we know, it's kind of like this. And God knows everything. So it's no wonder that we don't always understand what's going on. But God does. God does. That's where our hope is. But I want to say one more very important thing. This God who has determined exactly what he knows is best to do according to his infinite perfect wisdom, this God who will carry it out, this God invites us to pour out our hearts to him. This is astonishing. We can learn from the example of Christ in the garden when he poured out his heart to the Father. Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. And yet... Not my will, but yours be done. This is what God calls us to do, to pour out our hearts to him, but under the umbrella of submission to his wisdom, his perfect wisdom, acknowledging that he knows far better than I do what needs to happen in this situation, in this circumstance. So let us be like Christ praying in the garden, 
Let's pour out our hearts to the Lord honestly. He knows what's going on anyway. Pour out our hearts, but in submission to his higher will, his greater knowledge, his infinite wisdom. So when we pray, it might be helpful to recognize God's wisdom by using the phrase, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. You know this situation. You know the need. Lord, you know my heart. You, you know what will happen. Please, please align my will with yours. May I know more and more of your wisdom in this situation. All right, second attribute that we are going to be reminded of is God's power. God's power. Not only does God know what is best, but he has the ability to do what he knows is best. He devises perfect plans based on his infinite wisdom, and he has the power to carry them out. Again, God's power is taught throughout scripture. We see it clearly, but let me remind you from a few passages. You remember Job, the character of Job, and how he lost so much crops and animals and family and health, and then he was comforted by his friends. And then you remember how in, the, in chapter 38, God just graciously began to reveal a little bit more of his glory to Job, and it was overwhelming. And Job, I, I love this, Job's response in Job 42, verse 2, he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do all things, and no purpose of his can be thwarted. We read something similar from Nebuchadnezzar. You may remember how Nebuchadnezzar had been blessed with much military power and success, with riches and glory, and he was you know, walking up on the rooftop of his palace, taking credit for everything, this, this glorious thing that I have done. And immediately God put him out to pasture, literally, right? And through that experience, he learned truth about the character of God. In Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, says this about God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a beautiful description of God's sovereignty from this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. God does what he chooses to do, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stop God from doing what he has determined to do. Another familiar story from the book of Daniel, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three men being thrown into the fiery furnace because they did not worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. I love their declaration in Daniel 3, verses 16 and 17. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that. They focused on God's ability. They knew God could deliver them from the fiery furnace. They didn't know if he was going to, but it didn't matter because they were not going to bow down to the, the false image. We read something similar in the familiar miracle of Jesus healing the leper in Matthew 8. A leper, came, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. If you will, you can. We do not always know God's will. Again, God knows far more than we do. But we do know that God can do whatever he chooses to do. This is part of what it means to be God. He has infinite power. One of my favorite texts that I use in prayer often is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able, (laughs) he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, I think it can be tempting for us to doubt God's power when we face something really hard, some tragic circumstance, a serious medical diagnosis, maybe a terrorist attack or a school shooting or just so many things that that we hear about that are overwhelming and so concerning to us. And it can be tempting to doubt God's power. But he is able. So when we pray, it might be helpful to recognize God's power by using the phrase, Lord, you are able. You are able. We don't always know what God will do, but we know that he can do what he knows is best. Third attribute we want to be reminded of, that is God's love, God's love. It's just been encouraging to me, I hope it has to you, to take a few minutes and be reminded of God's wisdom and God's power, how utterly trustworthy he is. And these grand, glorious truths are channeled toward us through his love for us. Because God loves us, he is committed to bringing about the very best for us. Now, of course, the supreme example of the love of God for us is found in the cross of Christ. A familiar verse, one of many, is 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How great a love the Father has shown us by sending his son to save us from our sins. This is the gospel, and the truth of this gospel should foster in us great hope and joy and thankfulness, and it should fuel our prayers God has met our deepest need by far in Christ. We can trust him for all of our lesser needs. This is the argument that Paul makes in Romans 8.32, where we read, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God loved us enough to send his son we can, we can trust him for everything else that we need. Our greatest need has been met. Nothing, as we read in verses 37 to 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. How encouraging to our hearts it is to read these passages and to meditate on God's lavish, relentless, unending love for us. Let's read more about God's love in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. The love of Christ for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. These are great verses to return to when you're kind of feeling a little bit lost, a little bit wondering about what your purpose is. This describes your purpose. Christ loves the church and is making the church, you and me, holy and blameless, without blemish, 
He is sanctifying us. He is cleansing us of our sins. This is the work that he is doing because he loves us. This should give us great joy. This should be something that we reflect on regularly. This is our true identity for those of us in Christ. He is sanctifying us and making us more like himself. Because God loves us, because Christ loves us, we can be the recipients of good. They, God and God knows what is good for us. It's so interesting to think about. We, we're all familiar with that verse, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But we need to remember one thing. God defines good. God defines good. It may not always necessarily look like what we think is good. But remember, God knows everything infinitely and perfectly. And he knows what is good for us. He brings into our lives and he withholds from our lives exactly what he in his infinite wisdom knows will make us more like Christ. And it will look different for each one of us. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So let's think a little bit about how God's wisdom and God's power and his love kind of fit together as we think about prayer. Isn't it a blessing that God is all-wise and all-powerful? What if he had all wisdom, but he wasn't able to accomplish what he knew was best? Oh my goodness, he would be just so frustrated and limited and not, not able to carry out what he knows is best. But what if he had all power without wisdom? What a fearsome God he would be, just doing things, whatever he chose to do, because he could do it, but not channeled by his wisdom. How blessed we are that he is a God of infinite wisdom and infinite power, and that that is channeled toward us through his infinite love. This is true truth about the God to whom we pray, and we should remember it when we come to pray to him. We need, I'm convinced that a lot of the Christian life, well, that's probably an overstatement, some of the Christian life is choosing to believe what we know is true. Choosing to believe what we know is true. I know you're in a very well-taught church. You know a lot of glorious truth about our great God and his plan of redemption and so on. We have to choose to believe what we know is true. When we come to God in prayer, we are saying, in effect, I trust you. I believe in you. I have faith in you. I am depending upon you. I recognize that I don't have the wisdom and the power, and so I turn to you. So let's pull this together in this statement that is on your handout. Faith that informs prayer is trusting God's power to accomplish what his wisdom and his love has planned. Faith that informs prayer. When we come to pray, we want to remember these things. Faith that informs prayer is trusting God's power to accomplish what his wisdom in his love has planned. This is the kind of faith that fuels our prayer life and lays such a rich foundation for our prayers. All right, let's take a few minutes and talk about a very big question. Why pray? Perhaps you have been wondering that if God knows everything to do and God is going to do it and no one can stop his hand or keep him from doing it, why pray? Why pray? Maybe you've had somebody ask you that question. I think there are a lot of answers. I'm going to mention three answers briefly, and they all start with the letter P so that we can remember them. I love alliteration. I hope you do. Uh, the first one is precept. 
precept, which is another word for commandment. But commandment doesn't start with P. So we're going with precept. Okay. First, God commands us to pray. God commands us to pray. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Matthew 5.44 instructs us to pray for our enemies. James 5.16 tells us to pray for one another. And there are so many more. Prayer is commanded in Scripture, and it is assumed throughout Scripture. Christians are to be prayers. And that in itself is reason enough. He's God. He has complete authority over us to tell us what to do. If we're thinking rightly, biblically, accurately about who God is and who we are before him, we will recognize he is our authority. He reigns and rules over everything with wisdom and might and justice and righteousness and meticulous providence. He made us. He sustains us. He redeems us. He is God. And we are not. And as God, he has commanded us to pray. And as we read God's word, we need to notice specific commands to pray, instructions about prayer requests, examples of how to pray. We have many wonderful examples of how to pray. God's word gives us plenty of information about what to pray about and how to pray. And he grounds it all, it grounds it all in God's absolute authority to command us to pray. Obeying these commands cultivates in us a submissive and humble heart. And yet, let us see that this command is a warm, open-armed invitation. It's a command from our all-wise, all-loving Heavenly Father for our good. God's commands are not burdensome. Indeed, we have a duty to obey them, but it is also a delight to obey His commands. God made us, and he knows best how we ought to live for true and lasting joy. That leads us to a second reason why we should pray, and that is privilege. Privilege. In his mercy, God invites us into relationship with him, and this should astonish us. The creator, the ruler, the sustainer welcomes us invites us into a warm and intimate relationship with him to communicate with him about everything. Think how you would feel if the president of the United States invited you to the Oval Office for a meeting. He wanted, wanted to hear from you. I mean, it'd be pretty astonishing, wouldn't it? Or maybe for you fellow Anglophiles, it would be maybe the late Queen of England. I just, I just can't talk about King Charles. I'm sorry. It's got to be Queen Elizabeth for me. But what, how you would feel if in a previous time, Queen Elizabeth asked to have a weekly phone call with you? I mean, you would just feel so honored, wouldn't you? But how much more we should feel that when the creator, redeemer, ruler of all things, God, invites us, draws us into this close relationship. He wants to hear from us. That should take our breath away. You know, prayer is to benefit us, not God. He does not need anything from us. He has all things within himself. He's self-sufficient. We cannot tell him anything that he doesn't already know and know far better than we do. We cannot give him advice or, in, or recommendations. He is the giver of all good things. Prayer leads us to acknowledge our complete dependence upon him for all things. It is for us to draw near to him, our only hope. Think about this great God with all wisdom, infinite power, and astonishing love. This God invites us to pour out our hearts to him. What an unspeakable privilege. When we pray, we are in direct contact with God the Father. He relates to us as our perfect, loving, heavenly Father. And we pray through the work of the Son, our Redeemer and great high priest. 
Through his obedient life and death and his victorious resurrection, he has won access for us to the throne of grace. Rejoice in the glorious truth of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I think of that line from before the throne, whoever lives and pleads for me. Astonishing, Jesus, our great high priest, is interceding for us. Also, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. Remember Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I used to read that verse, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. I didn't really understand it. But in the last few years, we have faced burdens and sorrows that have been very, very difficult, and now I understand. There are times when I cannot pray. I can only groan, but I trust that the Spirit is interceding for me. And even in that, don't you see the generous, gracious nature of our great God? He commands us to pray, and he gives us help from his Son and from his Spirit to obey that command. Don't you love that about God? He's so generous. Praying on our own with our brothers and, or with our brothers and sisters in Christ draws us closer into relationship with the triune God and with each other. And then that leads us to a third reason why we should pray. The third P, participation. So precept, privilege, participation. By inviting us to pray to him, to draw closer to him, God graciously, generously invites us to be participants in his wise and wonderful work. He compels us to enter into his work, to be instrumental in fulfilling his will. Maybe you know the title of that book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God could if he so chose, carry out everything that he chooses to do, like that, everywhere, at all time, without any help from anybody, thank you very much, because he's God. He could, but he doesn't choose to work that way. He doesn't choose to accomplish his purposes that way. He chooses to invite us to participate, to be used by him in ministry to each other, to be used by him as prayer warriors, to be used by him as evangelists, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ at home and far away. God is so generous that he includes us in his work. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, although God does as he pleases, he uses means like prayer, witnessing, Bible reading, the doing of good works, for Paul, the knowledge that God was working was an inducement to prayer, not an excuse for neglecting it. It was because God was at work that he could pray with confidence. I love that. We know God is at work, and he invites us to be part of the work that he is doing. You know, as we pray repeatedly, perhaps, over an extended period of time, praying for something particular over and over, we become more attuned to seeing God's answer 
Have you experienced that when something that you've prayed about for so long and then God in his wisdom chooses to answer in a particular way and because you've been praying, you see it more deeply and richly and you rejoice and praise him. That has happened to me a number of times. I'll tell you one example. As Rachel said, I have four older sisters, Judy, Joyce, Jan, Jill, Jody. So yeah, the five J's. My mom used to sew everything we wore, and oh, I could tell stories. Okay, I won't go there. But one of my sisters had a, has a husband and has had a really, really difficult marriage, just almost unspeakably hard. And for years, the only way that her husband has communicated with her was um, either yelling at her or ignoring her. And he moved out to the garage. He didn't leave the home necessarily, but he was living in the garage, just living a separate life. And this went on for years and years and years and decades. And I watched my sister live out as she, as best she could, being a wife, doing what she could to help her husband being very, not complaining. It was, it was just an amazing thing. I was in their home a lot visiting, and it was remarkable to see how God's grace sustained my sister in such a difficult marriage. So I pray for a different sister each day of the week, and I prayed for this sister and her husband on Tuesdays for years and years and years and years and years. And recently, I went to visit my sister, and as she picked me up at the airport, she said, I have to tell you that God is at work in John's heart. Really? <laughs> after all these, after decades, decades of prayer and seeing nothing? And she explained to me what the Lord was doing, how he was just manifesting his grace, how he was drawing John to him through some particular relationships and some things that he was reading. And I cannot tell you, it's now been... I think about four years, and he's doing so well. He's doing so well. He's walking faithfully with the Lord, restored to his family. I, I didn't know that if God was going to be pleased to answer that. And I, I understood that God could. I didn't know if that was going to be his will. But because I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, the joy that we felt, the celebration that we had was just remarkable. And because I had prayed, I was able to, to enter into it in a deeper, richer way. So let's be women who pray and who pray repeatedly and who pray, pray persistently that we may see the hand of the Lord as he chooses to work. So we see that God commands us to pray God draws us into close relationship with him through prayer, which is a privilege. And he invites us to be participants in his work. These are three compelling reasons for us to pray. So now let's think a little bit about why we don't pray more. What are some hindrances that keep us from pursuing a closer relationship with God through prayer? I don't think any of us at the end of our lives are going to look back and think, Oh, I just spent too much time praying. I just shouldn't have done that. Should have done something else. No, I don't think we're going to see that at all. <laughs> I think we all could grow in our, in our prayer life. So it's worth thinking about what are some hindrances? What are some things that I deal with? What are some things that keep me from praying? And how can I work against those? How can I grow in these areas? So I'm going to talk about our three classic enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. First of all, the world. The world is a hindrance to our prayers in this way. The world entices us to look to its pleasures for satisfaction and meaning, and it distracts us. I meant to bring my phone up. I wish I had it because I was going to hold up my phone right now and go, enticing and distracting. Need I say more? It's just amazing what this little instrument does in just distracting us from the things that we know we ought to be doing. 
And as we look to things of this world for significance, for meaning, we are, our hearts just grow smaller and colder toward the Lord. We live in such a wealthy culture, such a materialistic society, the highest standard of living that people have known throughout history. Recently, I heard of people having cashmere sweaters made for their dogs, and I thought, hmm, yeah, we have a little bit too much discretionary money. But our culture and all of this materialism, all of this entertainment, all of these worldly values are all around us, and they cry out to us. They entice us. They allure us. They distract us from the things that truly matter, the things that are truly weighty. You are no doubt familiar with the C.S. Lewis quote I have there. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. This vivid picture when we are looking to the stars the things around us for satisfaction, for meaning, for entertainment, and our hearts just shrivel correspondingly. Rather than clinging to God through his word and prayer and nurturing our relationship with him, we look to the things around us for meaning and for pleasure. Let's be reminded of God's true perspective in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you see this loving God, your relationship with God, that lasts forever. The things of this world are passing away. So we want to give both categories of things the appropriate weight, the appropriate meaning, the appropriate importance in our lives. We need to constantly guard our hearts and to think clearly about where true satisfaction is found. According to Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Or think of Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Ladies, we have a choice. How are you going to fill your time? What is going to get your attention? Where are you going to spend your focus. Is it going to be things of this world that pass away, things that shrink our hearts? Or is it going to be cultivating your relationship with the Lord, pursuing him with time in his word and in prayer? So here are just a few practical thoughts for resisting the enticements and the distraction of the world. One, guard Guard your eyes, ears, minds, and ultimately heart from being filled up with things of this world. When I limit my exposure to things of this world, I, it enlarges my heart toward the Lord. But giving into those things, giving too much time and attention to them shrinks our heart toward the Lord. Number two, <laughs> limit the time you spend shopping in person and online. We just want to be good stewards. We want to find good deals, but we don't want to spend all day doing it. So don't give too much time and effort to acquiring things. Know what you truly need, get a good deal, and then move on. Just don't spend too much time on that. The the opportunity to get whatever we want in whatever color we want in whatever size we want on our porch in two hours just tempts us a lot to... It, it overwhelms us. We have so many options, and we can spend so much time looking for that best option, can't we? Let's, let's beware of how we're spending our time. 
Number three, be intentional to develop a wider view of the world. Take time to learn about the lifestyles and conditions of most of the people around the world. One suggestion is to use the prayer guide Operation World. Or there's a, a section on every country in the world and what is happening there and how to pray for them. As you read about and pray for Christians around the world who are losing their lives because they name the name of Christ or are being uh, persecuted or suffering, it puts our wants and needs into a more accurate perspective and it helps to loosen our self-preoccupation and just loosen the grip that the world has on our hearts. And then look for ways to be givers. Number four, look for ways to be givers. Ephesians 4.28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so he will have something to share with one who has need. So this verse tells us there's three ways to think about money. You can steal, which that's not the recommend, recommendation. You can work to have, or you can work to have to give. Work to have to give, to share. And as we learn to give of our possessions and our money and our time and our energy more freely, it just frees us from the addiction to things of this world. Okay, let's move on and talk about the flesh for a minute. A big area of hindrance to our prayer life is the flesh. As, first, as Peter warns in 1 Peter 2.11, our flesh wages war against our souls. And don't you feel that sometimes? Our flesh hinders us in many ways. Here are a few. The first is pride. Pride. We think we don't really need God. Here's the truth, friends. Prayerlessness indicates a heart attitude of independence from God. Prayerlessness indicates a heart attitude of independence from God. We think we could figure things out on our own. We certainly have lots of good ideas about what needs to change, right? If we're, if we're not praying about it, we think we don't need God. We think we can handle it on our own. Closely related is self-absorption. It is difficult for us to think beyond our own thoughts and feelings and opinions and perspectives. We're just so turned in on ourselves. I remember a number of years ago hearing a speaker challenge us to pray for five minutes a day for our husbands. And you think, five minutes a day? Goodness, that's easy. Try it. Time yourself. You can get a lot of praying done in five minutes. It's, it's really a wonderful practice. So just praying for other people helps uh, release us from that self-absorption. Idolatry. We are sinfully prone to love anything else more than we love God. These are just things we should be asking, asking ourselves about, examining our hearts Laziness, it truly is hard work to pray, to linger in prayer, to discipline our mind and heart, to be focused on the Lord and his word. Elizabeth Elliot says, prayer is the hardest work we will ever do. Some other sins of the flesh that hinder our prayer lives we see in the Sermon on the Mount, anger or broken relationships, when someone has something against you. We read in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Hypocrisy. Praying to be seen as spiritual by others rather than praying to God. Matthew 6, 5, and 6, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Another hindrance, an unforgiving spirit, when you have something against someone else. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And then the temptation to live by our emotions. This is the way the flesh hinders us a lot. Tempting us to live by our emotions. We may not always feel like praying, 
We may not always feel like trusting the Lord, but we must guard against living our lives by our feelings. It's important to choose to do what we know is right, and then the feelings will probably follow, but even if they don't, we keep on choosing to do what is right. C.H. Spurgeon, the British preacher of the 19th century, said, We should pray when we are in a praying mood, for it would be sinful to neglect so fair an opportunity. We should pray when we are not in the proper mood, for it would be dangerous to remain in so unhealthy a condition. Isn't that helpful? Pray when you feel like it. Don't waste that opportunity. Pray when you don't feel like it. That's a dangerous place to be. So here are some thoughts about fighting the flesh in our prayer lives. Use a system to keep you focused. Because our minds tend to wander, we need something to direct our thoughts. We all have many things we want to pray about. Figure out some kind of system, a way to keep track of the things that you want to pray about regularly and use it. Figure out a good time of day for your regular prayer time, a time when you are naturally more alert. Think about posture. Sometimes I can sit in my cozy chair in the living room with my cup of coffee and just pray away, and it's wonderful. Sometimes that's a little bit too comfortable. Sometimes I need to kneel or I need to walk. Sometimes it's appropriate to lay down, face down on the floor before God, acknowledging our complete dependence on him. Write things down both writing down your prayers, that could be so helpful. I have a practice on New Year's Day. I read back through my prayer journals of the previous year, and it is so encouraging to see all the ways that God answered prayer and really to see all the ways that God changed my heart. And it just gives me such hope for the coming year. It's also helpful to just write down those thoughts that come into your mind that are distracting you, right? Have a way to keep track of them. You know, take chicken out of the freezer. Call Mary, whatever it is. Write it down so you don't have to keep remembering and you could keep praying. It might be helpful to pray out loud. It's a good way to kind of keep you focused. And then regularly engage in times of self-examination. Asking the Spirit to reveal sin in your life, ways in which pride has taken root, areas of idolatry, if you're holding on to anger or a lack of forgiveness, and if you're really struggling in some of these areas, get help, talk to someone about that, get some wise counsel, and then seek ways to buffet your body. I almost said buffet. <laughs> Not the intention. I was like, buffet? Okay. Seek ways to buffet your body, to battle your flesh, to strengthen self-control. Fasting is an excellent way to do this. In effect, it is saying no to fleshly appetites and yes to God. It's a good way to do battle with the flesh. All right, and then just a word about the devil as we bring this to a close. The devil actively works to defeat us. He knows what is at stake when we pray. We mentioned three reasons why we pray, that God commands it, and it's a privilege, and we get to par participate in God's work. How does Satan feel about all that? He doesn't like it. <laughs> he wants to keep us from prayer. He works hard to defeat us. He knows that as we seek God's will and God's direction and empowerment, we are better equipped to resist his temptations and his desires for our allegiance. He loves to thwart our efforts and to discourage us, to delay us, to distract us, to defeat us. And most commonly, he succeeds by deceiving us. He is the father of lies. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? He loves to deceive us. So to fight against this deception, we must keep God's truth and prayer central so that we can see what is true as God clears and transforms our minds. Prayer is a weapon against Satan's attacks, against his deceit, against his temptation. So for strategies in fighting against the devil, we need to think biblically. It's helpful for us to seriously consider verses such as 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
read Ephesians 6 and think about the spiritual armor that God has given us, the word and prayer, among other things. But we need to see that it is God at work in us. Think of James 4, 7, and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then that familiar verse, 1 John 4, 4, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As we stay close to the Lord in prayer, we are strengthened to resist Satan's attacks. So we need to strategize with balance and with right thinking and be sobered by our adversary, but not be frightened because God is greater. As we bring this session to a close, here is something to think about. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There is nothing that tells the truth about us as a Christian people so much as our prayer life. There's nothing that tells the truth about us so much as our prayer life. So let me encourage you to think about that. What does your prayer life tell you about your attitude toward God? Are we growing in humble dependence in a God-oriented, quick-to-pray-about-everything way? I love this Elizabeth Elliot quote that we will end with. I love this picture of quiet submission, of acceptance, of acquiescence. This is what I want to mark my prayers. She wrote, Lord, we give you thanks for all that you in your mercy have given to us to be and to do and to have. Deliver us, Lord, from all greed to be and to do and to have anything not in accord with your holy purposes. Teach us to rest quietly in your promise to supply, recognizing that if we don't have it, we don't need it. Teach us to desire your will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. For Jesus' sake, amen. May, may the Lord work in each of our hearts, helping us see the beauty and the privilege and the rightness of pursuing him in prayer. May we be more aware of the things that distract us, the things that entice us, the things that keep us from prayer. And may we pray that God will draw our hearts to him. May our dependence on Christ, our perfect Savior and unfailing intercessor, draw us into a deeper and sweeter and more joyful life of prayer for God's glory and our everlasting good. How blessed we are. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that you, in your infinite love for us, call us to pour out our hearts to you and to trust you for everything. We thank you that you are a God who hears and cares and knows and is able and loves us. Lord, may we be increasingly women who are prayers. Oh, Lord, for your glory, we pray this. Please work within each one of us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.